Psalm, Psalm 127, verse 3 and 4. Verses 3 and 4. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Matthew 18, 1, one through, I forgot how, where I end. Four, okay. All of a sudden it didn't escape my brain. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Raising Biblical Babies. That's where we're at this morning. We've only got this Sunday morning and next Sunday morning, and then we're done with two little birdies. And as Mike said, we're going to be going to a short little three-part series entitled um, uh, Promise, Purpose, and Provision. So we want to spend three weeks after two little birdies reestablishing why we're doing what we're doing as a church. Um, I think that, you know, to tell you the truth, I think we've experienced a little bit of mission drift through the winter. Uh, we sold the building last spring or last January or so. We moved into this new facility in May, uh, saw some turnaround, saw some transitioning, saw a bunch of stuff go down. And then I think we got into Two Little Birdies, which has been an amazing series. But through that, I think that we have experienced a little bit of mission drift. And so after we finished Two Little Birdies, we want to once again redirect our attention to who we are as a church and why we're doing what we're doing as a church and how God wants to provide for us to fulfill the mission. Then, like Mike said, we're going to the book of Zechariah. So a couple things I wanted to say here before we get rolling uh, this morning. This series has been very, very uh, effective in surfacing a lot of issues. And I think that some of us within our marriages um, are feeling the weight of God's word in our souls. And I want to remind you that God gives us grace. That if God is confronting areas of weakness in your marriages, areas that he wants to build up or bolster, don't run from that, but instead allow yourselves to submit to that word of grace. That he wants to encourage you and he wants to strengthen you and he wants to transform you. Uh, Along with that, there's been some need for counseling. And I do want to... Uh, offer my wife and myself and the other pastors, Pastor Jim and his wife Janice, Pastor Mike and his wife Abby, just to be here to support you. Today we're going to be taking communion. Some of you just need prayer and Jed and uh, Carol Tan will have prayer people around as we take communion today. Go and get prayer today. But there's just been a lot that has been coming to the surface through this series. And so I wanted to remind you that God's grace is at work. Don't run from what God is doing in your hearts. Rejoice in it. And the other thing I want to say before we pray and get to work here this morning in our time together is as we begin these next two sessions on raising biblical babies, I want to first talk to the folks in here that have miscarried or have struggled with infertility. These times together can tend to create a sense of emptiness and a sense of hopelessness, especially for women who desire to have a baby, but God in his sovereignty has counted a couple worthy to suffer under the trial of infertility. And so I want to first address you and exhort you that God in his sovereignty is good. His grace is still with you, that you are not being punished if you are currently struggling with infertility or if you have miscarried a baby. God is not angry with you. God is not punishing you. God has not left you. For some reason in his sovereignty, He has chosen you to suffer in this way, to make much of him, to find him as your one and only treasure. So I want to comfort your heart this day, sister and brother. And as we go through these sessions, don't let these sessions just be a a salt in the wound, but instead let the spirit lift you up and point you to Jesus and, and rejoice that God is good in his sovereignty, though it's painful, though it can be 
extremely hurting in certain seasons. Okay, with all of that said, we've got a whole pile to get through in these next two weeks. So, as usual, I'm going to talk about a million miles an hour. You guys take notes, and uh, God will be gracious with us. Let's pray. Biblical baby raising. Lord Jesus, uh, today we offer ourselves to you, and Holy Spirit, we offer ourselves completely in surrender to you. Uh, be our teacher, be our comforter, be our guide, be our counselor. It is somewhat of a, a lighthearted prayer amongst this family called Taproot. We pray for piles of babies, but in all earnestness, it is a godly prayer and it is a biblical desire and it is your will that we would multiply and be fruitful and inhabit the earth. I want to pray for the precious couples who are suffering under trouble and trial of infertility that right now you would strengthen their hearts, encourage them and bless them. Remind them that the mark of blessing and Christianity is not a baby, but your blood, Jesus. And Father, I pray for the couples who are determining now their families, that you would bless them with great fruitfulness, great joy. I pray for the fathers in this room, that they would be pastors to their little flocks. I pray for the wives, Lord, that they would be helpers and nurturers in their homes. And so in these next two sessions, as we wrap up this series of sermons on marriage and sexuality and babies, may you be made much of and may the community called Taproot be yielded to you as you pour out your spirit on us in this city. Make much of your name through us in Jesus' name. Amen. It's a funny thing how people think about children in the city. I was uh, doing an interview for an elder candidate uh, at one of my buddy's churches just last week. They live in downtown Seattle. And I was doing an assessment of one of his elder prospects. And this young man had just adopted a baby and his wife, Michelle, was in the room with us. And she made this very interesting comment that just put my mind to thinking more deeply about how people think about kids in our culture. She said, you know, it's hard because before we adopted our little baby girl, because I'd asked the question, how's your missionary life? Tell me about how, your evangelism. Tell me about how you're making disciples of unbelievers. And she said, before we adopted our little baby, we'd be at the bars and at the pubs and at the speakeasies every night with all of our single friends and all of our married couple friends. And we could go do whatever we wanted to do because we didn't have kids. But then God brought us this little gift and we adopted her. And it was amazing because so many of our friends had this kind of attitude towards us suddenly. It, it, it was like they never said this outwardly, but they would come up and they would say, you know, congratulations on your adoption. Congratulations on, on that baby. Congratulations on, on taking on the responsibility and the, the emotional responsibility and the, and the fiscal responsibility. Sucker, I'm out of here. <laughs> and then they would leave. She said all of our friends have simply just departed. The idea of having a kid was kind of like a plague to them because it like pointed them to the reality of responsibility that they were really skirting. And so out here in suburbanite world in the south end of the Seattle metro, it's not as prevalent. A lot of families move out here. A lot of professionals move to the burbs so that they can have their white picket fence and have their house and start raising their kids. But the truth is the cultural kind of pressure seeps through in the way that we think about kids. And society tends to look at kids as liabilities, tends to look at kids as hindrances, tends to look at kids as problematic, as expensive, all of those things they are. But the Bible has a very, very clear picture of who God is and how he wants us to honor the family, how he wants us to continue to grow our families for his glory. And so what we're going to do over the next two weeks this morning, we're going to talk about seven foundations for biblical parenting seven foundations for biblical parenting. And then next week, we'll talk about seven instructions for biblical parenting. So the map this morning is seven foundations for biblical parenting. And then we're going to try to, if we have enough time, pick up the first instruction for biblical parenting. And uh, I am so glad that you guys are all here. And again, these two sessions, they're probably going to get right down into the heart of some issues in all of our parental lives. So just reminding you that grace is what governs us. Seven foundations 
for biblical parenting. God wants us to be raising babies according to his will. He's all about babies. He loves babies. And so we need to have somewhat of a platform for us to understand parenting and for our parenting to grow out of. So number one this morning, number one foundation for biblical parenting, recognize that God relates and exists in himself as a father and a son. This is a profound meditation. The God who created the universe reveals himself, relates to himself, and exists in a father-son family relationship. Remember, our marriages emanate out of the reality of who God is, how he relates to himself. He takes great delight in himself. He has great joy in the presence of father, son, and spirit. He experiences pleasure and intimacy with father, son, and spirit. He exalts himself. He adores himself. He is perfectly content with himself. Thus, we draw out our experience and our definition of love and joy and pleasure in marriage out of who God is. Our sexuality is a reflection of who God is. Intimate unity, two becoming one, three in one, our God. And so too, the primary foundation of biblical parenting is understanding that a father and son and spirit, three in one relationship is what emanates or what brings about. That is the very foundation of being a godly parent. It emanates out of who God is and what God does and how God relates to himself. Second foundation for biblical parenting, just establishing that this is what God wants to do and that he loves kids. We're in December right now, Advent season, love, joy, peace, hope. And what we are celebrating is the birth of baby God. That God was willing to become a baby. God was willing to be a toddler. God was willing to go through elementary school. God dealt with junior high zits and puberty. God dealt with high school peer pressure. God became a man. But he didn't just become a man. He was born in all places and in all ways as we are. And so if God delights in becoming one with us, so too it becomes a foundation for us in understanding what humanity and how humanity functions. Not only adult humanity, but all the way up through because he was a sinless toddler. Some of you moms are like, oh my gosh, can you imagine a sinless toddler? Jesus was a sinless toddler. If he threw a tantrum, it was perfect. That's amazing. Perfect tantrums. Let's start praying for that. Number three. Number three, foundation for biblical parenting. God reveals himself to us as father and calls us children. It's this point of meditation that I've been stuck on all week. God reveals himself as father, as father, as father. Martin Luther would say that it's this sweetness that empowers the Holy Spirit to work through God's people when they recognize that he is father. The apostle John said in 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, see what kind of love the father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The Bible is replete. The Bible is filled with these references to God as our father. He wills in his word that we understand him as tender and tough, firm and faithful, everlasting father. Father. When the Bible says to become a Christian, there's a certain act that has to happen. It doesn't say that we need to get right with a master. It doesn't need that It doesn't say that to be a Christian, we become obedient to to a dictator. The Bible says, no, you're born again. You become a child of God by the Spirit. You're regenerated, and he begins to call you child. In fact, the difference between somebody who's going to heaven and somebody who's going to hell is not their pious works, not their religious endeavors, but the one going to heaven, the one born again, the one saved, says in Romans chapter 8, verse 18, that he cries out by the Spirit, Abba. The born-again, heaven-bound soul understands God as Father, as Abba. So much so that that individual soul has now been placed as a baby in the hands of his father. Abba, it's this Middle Eastern word like we would say, Papa or Dada. Abba, this is how God would have us view him and respond to him and relate to him. And I can tell you that for myself, this is one of the greatest struggles I have had. 
I confess to you, and I'm sure most of you will relate to, to this. We can all relate to God as maker and we are made. We can all relate to God as Lord and master and we are servant and slaves. Correct? It's, it's easy for us to, to think of God as the leader and we're the followers. It's, it's not too far of a stretch. In fact, I think a lot of us lived here and live here. We think of God as perfect and we are imperfect. And all of these things are true to a degree. But the primary place where God would have us relate to himself is as father. And we as children. Brothers and sisters, this transforms the way we look at the Bible. This transforms the way that we live with our wives and our husbands. This transforms the way that we look at our church and our city. This transforms the way that we experience suffering. This transforms the way that we deal with the the plight and the problems of daily living. This transforms the way that we understand blessing and grace and mercy. This transforms everything. And the Spirit is wooing and calling each one of us at the beginning of these two sessions to recognize our God as revealed in this title of Father. Some of us have daddy issues. I'm one of them. And I had a pretty decent dad. And so we want to, by default, attribute that word father to our earthly father who was fallen. And who, for some of us, he tried his best but failed in many ways. But our father in heaven is perfect. Our father in heaven is merciful. Our father in heaven is gentle. Our father in heaven is sovereign. Our father in heaven, in him there is no darkness. He is light. He is love. And he says, yield yourselves to the work of the Spirit where you are no longer these religious, hardworking, laboring adults become babies in my hand, helpless, incapable, weak, cry out, Abba, and I will provide for you and I will protect you and I will take care of you. This is the foundation for biblical parenting. To be able to relate to our Father in heaven, to trust Him, to adore Him, to worship Him, to love Him, to respect Him, to sing to Him, to experience Him, to be protected by Him. This is the foundation of what it becomes to be a father on earth as He is in heaven. And of course, we will all always be imperfect. We will all be failing our sons and daughters. But with that foundation in place, our homes will be so much more healthy. Number four. Number four foundation for biblical parenting One, God exists as father and son. Two, God became a baby. Three, God reveals himself as father. Four, God's will is procreation. God's will is that we have babies. The very first command that God gives to his newly created Adam and Eve, Genesis chapter one, the very first words that God speaks to Adam and Eve, there they are fresh out of the creative will of God. They are butt naked and they are unashamed. And God says to them, be fruitful and multiply. And he's not talking about making jam and doing math problems. He is talking about making babies. The very first command to these naked, newly made human beings, God's will built into the very DNA of the apex of his creation in mankind is go and experience creation yourselves. He loves it. It's not something that's a hindrance. In the garden where everything was perfect, God's first will is of his humanity. Make more of you. More and more and more. Some of you who are visiting may be sitting there saying, oh my gosh, is this one of those crazy cults where everybody's going to have 15 kids? I hope so. I don't know. (laughs) I mean, God wants us to have kids. He's all about it. And it's been that way from the garden and it will be all the way that way until the new city in Jerusalem where the cities will be filled with saints of God obedient to him, saved by his grace. Number five, number five foundation for biblical parenting. If you want to be a wise father and a gentle parent, understand that the Bible actually calls children gifts, rewards, a heritage, arrows, blessings, all of these wonderful things that the Bible relates to us or describes children as. In Psalm 127 that Candy read for us this morning, I'll read it for us just for emphasis again. We have this revelation of how God thinks about kids and the way that we should be thinking about 
our children as we raise them in our home. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb of a womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. A firm foundation for biblical fatherhood and biblical motherhood is that you repent of looking at your babies as problems, hindrances, liabilities. Viewing them as irritations, out of control, I need to get rid of, pawn them off to somebody else, which is what we'll talk about next week. Parenting is your primary responsibility. And view them as God views them. These precious, tiny little gifts, these little bits of humanity that he has given you stewardship of and wants to give you stewardship over. Number six, number six, foundation for biblical parenting. Jesus actually used children as prime examples for what it is to be believers. I have found over the years that children, particularly my children, are daily sermons to my souls. Again, I'll read for you in Matthew chapter 18 what Jesus says as he lifts them up as an example. Matthew 18 says, At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and they were saying, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? So they were looking to who's the most religious, who's the most pious, who's got it right, who's getting it wrong. And Jesus grabs this little two-year-old, drags him over, this little toddler and says, calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them. And he said, truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like this one right here, this little child, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus would lift up these little babies as sermons to our souls to teach us what it is to relate to him, to relate to our God, to love our God. Children are an example to us in so many ways. I I heard this story last week. They are this example of unquestioning faith. There, There was this little girl and she was in art class and she was drawing a picture and the art teacher comes over and And she says to the little girl, oh, that's beautiful. What is it that you're drawing? She looks up and, you know, just without even a a bat of the eye says, well, I'm drawing God. And the teacher looks at her and says, well, nobody knows what God looks like. And she looks up and doesn't miss a beat. She says, well, they will in a minute. (laughs) They're like this example of unquestioning faith. (laughs) And listen to me. You don't have to teach a child that there's a God. Culture has to train that out of them. We're all born innately believing that something's there. It's sinful culture and sinful influence that has to retrain the human being, that little human being, to question God. Jesus would lift them up as an example of unquestioning faith, but also an example of simplicity and understanding. I heard another story last week that cracked me up. There were three little boys and they were getting ready to do the nativity scene and the nativity play. And they were so excited about it. So the, they were going to be the three kings that were bringing the gifts of gold and myrrh and frankincense. And so the first little boy comes up and he hands to, to the baby the, the gift of gold and says, I am the king from the north and here's your gift of gold. And he, he lays it down at the foot of the, the, the manger there. Second little boy comes and he says, I, I am the king of the south. And I bring to you myrrh. And he, he hands him a pot and sets it down there at the, at the foot of the manger. Third little boy comes up and he's just beaming. This is his moment to shine. He, he's so excited about his opportunity and his line in the play. And he lays down at the foot of the manger a, a, silver, a silver bowl. And with all the, the bravado he can muster, he says, And I am the king from the east. Frank sent this. They are exemplary. We look to them because they have unquestioning faith. They are innocent. They are simplistic in their understanding. And God says, this is the way we ought to be. I mean, just the third one, third example from, from my own kid's life. Joby, my son, he, he, is, he is something else. And uh, we were in a season where he was learning about boys and girls and boys and girls' parts. And so from the very beginning, we were like, a boy has this, and we use the proper word, and a girl has this, and we use the proper word. Well, Joby, he gets in his head, and he's like, this is amazing. And this kind of became the thing that he obsessed over. Well, Sunday morning rolls around. He must have been, I don't know, maybe three. And uh, he was down in the Sunday school, and they were drawing pictures of Jesus. And Jesus, Jesus, of course, was born as a, as a man. And so Jesus, 
Joby walks up to, uh, I think it was maybe Catherine that was working down in the, in the children's area down there and holds up his picture and says, look, I'm going to draw Jesus with a penis. Because <laughs> he's innocent. You see, as adults, for some reason, we feel like our face should turn red there. Like, should I be thinking about Jesus with that kind of thing? Yeah. That's for real. Innocence, a sweetness. There's nothing, nothing questioning in children. And so a foundation for your parenting is not to look at them as inhibiting, as problems, as liabilities, as expensive. But I have learned daily, daily from the moment that Sophia entered this world and all three of my children have been here daily to watch them, to listen to them, to learn from them, to, to, to discover that as sweet as they are, they are filled with sin and they need the grace of God and they need the gospel of God as we'll talk about next week as much as I do. And then finally, number seven, seventh foundation for biblical parenting. One, God exists as father-child, father-son. Two, God entered humanity as a baby and lived as a child so we can understand humanity and children. Three, God reveals himself to us as father and calls us children. Four, beginning from the beginning, it has been God's will that man creates children. Five, the Bible calls children gifts. Six, Jesus used children as an example that we can learn from. Number seven, a foundation for our parenting is that parenting reflects our father. You know, they told me that my life would change when I had kids. Uh, a lot of guys told me that they cried when their baby was born, their first baby. I found myself saying, no, no. I told the, I, I'd heard about guys that had cried at their weddings, you know, when the, when the bride comes in. And of course, I was like, no. As soon as I saw my wife, I was just a blubbering mess as she was walking up. But with the baby, no way. I'm not going to, I mean, it's just a little, you know, greasy human being crying. What am I going to cry about? Who cares, right? I, I cannot, every single one of my children, every single one of my children, because parenting reflects our father, the moment that that baby comes in, Sophia, Sophia was born and she comes out and, you know, they suck in that big thing of air and then they go, Wah! it's like a banshee, right? And they, they laid her down in a little, in a little deal and I went over and I put my, you know, my, uh, my face over her and I said, Sophia, and she went silent. She was helpless. She couldn't feed herself. She was going to cost me an immense amount of money. She was going to take every bit of my sleep. She was going to have nothing to offer me at all. And for the first time, I think with fullness of deeper understanding, I understood my father's love. I understood this is unconditional. And tears, I mean, as soon as I said, Sophia, she went silent and she looked right into my eyes and my life is yours. I will die. I will die for you. Nyla comes out, pulls the little banshee scream. She had like this little, you guys remember the little troll? She had a little black troll tuft <laughs> sticking up. I went over, I laid my hand on her little wiry body and said, Nyla. And she went silent and <laughs> tears. And, and that same overwhelming sense, my life is her. Joby was a different story, and it was a unique thing for us because Joby was uh, premature. He comes out, sucks in his lungs, goes, <gasps> dead silence. And all of a sudden, the doctor starts yelling. He's something, something. And I watched his little chest concave in because his lungs weren't developed. And next thing I know, I'm looking at my son. And if you want to have a weird experience and understand the sacrifice of a father looking at your son, not knowing what's going to happen, I'm hauling butt down the hallway. The nurse is handing me oxygen. Hold this over his face. They're throwing tubes in his face. He's this tiny little wiry, big-headed alien-looking thing. And just that sense of, let me be there. Let me be there. Not him, me. He had nothing to offer me, nothing to give me. Just a father's love. A foundation for biblical parenting is this daily recognition that the emotion you feel, the love you feel, that sacrifice that you want to give is nothing in comparison to your father's love for you. Not even close. It is tainted with 
selfishness and falseness and, and, and ideas that are lost in sin. Your father's love for you is beyond even what you can experience towards your own sons and daughters. This points us back to his grace and to his glory. With that foundation laid, we have seven instructions for biblical parenting, and we're only going to get to the first one this morning. We're going to take about another 15 minutes here and talk about this first instruction for godly parenting. And I say that this, this was a tough one. It either fit in with the seven foundations or it's the overarching instruction for all other instructions in being godly parents. And it is this. Godly parenting keeps God as God. Godly parenting keeps God as God. And we are all in need of grace in these sessions. And I have found myself over the years falling prey to this temptation. 1 John chapter 5, verse 21 says, Little children, keep yourselves from idols. It is a very subtle, very insidious downhill slide of the human heart towards idolatry. And one of the places that we see the human heart given over in worship and beginning to sacrifice to in an unhealthy, unbiblical way is to our children. Because I would say for every Seattleite couple that says, I'm not going to have children for the sake of career and self, there's another Seattleite couple that says, I'm going to place my baby on a throne. And I will bow down and my identity and my dreams and my hopes, they will all be based on and they will all be fulfilled in this little tyrant king or this little tyrant queen. And two pounds or two feet and 20 pounds of human being begins to direct everything in the six foot human being's life. Everything. We all fall prey to this. We are all tempted to go to this place, especially as new parents. And at a church like ours where we've got bellies running around all over the place and babies being born about once every other month at this point, and that's only going to continue to increase As a young parent, it is of vital importance. The first instruction in being a godly parent is letting God remain as God and be at the center of your family life, not the baby at the center of the family life. It's interesting to me because this is more of a cultural phenomenon lately. If you look through the history of families and fatherhood and children, up until now, Children were born and they were utilized really as tools. They needed to work on the farm. They needed to be hands that were around to help. Um, uh, Children in the cultures prior to ours, particularly in the West and the United States, uh, respect and honor and submission were values in our culture that have been lost upon this culture. And so a child was born knowing his place. He was to be seen, not to be heard, which isn't a good thing either. Uh, A child was born and lived in a world where he was a helping hand. He didn't have a lot of value. He, he, he was to be submissive and, and respectful, and he knew his place in society. And our culture, in turn, has, has turned and, and changed that. And some of the symptoms of that, I'll just give you some of the kind of stereotypical symptoms. Every one of our kids is trained to believe that they are going to be the president of the United States of America. They're not. If this just like rips your heart out and you're devastated when I say your son or daughter is not going to be the president of the United States of America, you have imbibed, you have imbibed the cultural kind of idolatry of our children where we prop them up in these places and we put forward to them our dreams, our hopes, our identities. You're going to be the pro football player. You're going to be the lead ballerina. You're going to be all that you want to be. And the culture continues to to push that in. Some of the other symptoms of a culture that worships their children is we can no longer allow our children to get hurt or discouraged or experience failure, to lose. Uh, This whole idea of, I'll just give you a really clear, obvious, pragmatic picture of this. Back in my day, they're actually, I'm saying that now. I'm getting old enough that I can say that. Back in my day, uh, I can remember, you know, being down in Arkansas and a bunch of, you know, half-dressed little hillbilly kids heading to the lake with Pop and Granny, right? And they didn't put us in with seatbelts and stuff. They threw us in the back of Pop's truck. There'd be 18 cousins and me sitting in the back of Pop's truck, and we're doing 65 down the freeway. 
There was actually one point where we were coming into Lake DeGray. I remember I was maybe Sophia's age, maybe nine or ten. I was sitting in a lawn chair in the back of my pop's truck. And you remember those slider windows in those old Ford F-150s? I had my face in there. I was talking to Uncle Bill and talking to Pop. And, oh, man, I can't wait to get to the lake. And Pop goes whipping around a corner about 30 miles an hour. And all of a sudden, it's like I see my cousins going past me, and I'm sitting on the chair sliding backwards. And I just remember seeing my Uncle Bill, no. And I'm just sliding back, and I hit the tailgate, and I'm not kidding, 30 miles an hour. I backflipped out of that truck, landed on my elbows. I have the scars on my elbows and on my knees, bonked my head, got up, cried a little bit. Uncle Bill came over, you all right, you all right, rubs my head, and threw me in the back of the truck, and we went to the lake. (laughs) Now, when you got to load up your kids, you got to put a crash helmet on them. You're putting them in, like, two car seats and, like, these jet straps over the top of them, and... Am I saying we should throw our kids in the back of the truck? No. But what I am saying is culturally there is this this environment which we can't allow our kids to get hurt. Moms, I'm just going to tell you straight up. Little boys are going to come home with bruises on their heads. My son has had three concussions and he's six years old. And we are careful with him. I'm not beating him over the head with a baseball bat. This just happens. They're going to get in scraps. They're going to fight. Kids are going to come home with bruised knees. Here's something else that I think parents in this culture need to hear. Your kids are going to lose. They're not going to always be the top student. They're not always going to be the fastest. And to continue to to prop up with the lie that you're a little God and you can have the whole world revolve around you is to create a tyrant monster. It's scary. It's downright scary. One of the symptoms as well in this kind of cultural environment of worshiping our children is, is a lack of discipline. We're going to spend a lot of time next Sunday on, on biblical discipline because I think that it's important for us to feel comfortable and be bold and, and not be afraid of what society says and what some of the, uh, you know, some of the fringe psychology is saying uh, about biblical discipline, um, the nature of discipline, how to discipline. The Bible is very clear on all of these things. But when you live in a culture where the child is worshipped, it's taught that if you discipline, if you use the word no, or if you spank, if you set up parameters for this child, you're going to scar the little president or the little pro football player so they'll never reach their potential. And it just doesn't work that way, period. It just does not work that way, period. Now, I recognize this morning, guys, don't get me wrong, I have three kids, okay? I'm not, I'm not a novice here. Everything changes when you have a baby. Everything changes. And when you have two babies, it doubly changes. And when you have three, it triply changes. It, everything changes. That baby's going to cry. You're not going to sleep. It poops. It needs its diaper changed. Um, you know, you need to feed that thing. And that really doesn't change as they get older. I think somewhere around 26, you're finally free from all of that kind of stuff. But the reality is, though everything changes, you cannot have at the center of your existence and being two feet of human being, because God Almighty is the center of your life. And I'll tell you, God Almighty is the center of that two feet of human being as well. Here's a couple warning signs that either my wife and I have fallen prey to and and not caught, or we've caught and God in his grace has shown us these things. Just some, some symptoms where each of you as families, as parents can, whether you're parenting high schoolers, whether you've got a brand new newborn, just kind of check your hearts and say, okay, God, Where am I subtly not putting you at the center? Some warning signs here. Number one, number one, look at your calendar or look at the way that you spend your time and how you determine the way that you spend your time. Yes, everything needs to be repositioned. Everything. There's feedings, there's diaper changings, there's naps, all of those things. The calendar has to be working around those things. Yes, your elementary school kids are going to have school plays. In my house, we've got piano, we've got baseball, we've got ballet, we have these things. But none of those things are to the detriment of my wife and I's personal time with Jesus, time with each other, and time with you guys. When two feet of human being gets to determine my time with Jesus, my time with my wife, and my time with this church family, something's been repositioned. Something's been recentered in that place. And it's, 
it's such an easy thing to do because what happens to us is it's a pain in the rear when baby misses nap. Trust me, I know. It is hard. It is tough when, when the schedule gets usurped. But the fact of the matter is Jesus knows what you guys need as families. And for all of you young parents in here, as somebody just a little bit further down the road, you got to hear me because I love you more than anything. My life is yours. You know I love your kids. But gentlemen, my friends, my brothers, if you are not being fed, if your time is not being spent with Jesus, you are going to wreck your family. I have watched it over and over, and my heart is burdened for the families of this city. Men, you must prioritize God as the center. Time with God, time with your wife, time with your brothers and your sisters to hold you accountable so that you can raise a baby to the glory of God and raise a man of God who knows what God's priorities are. It is for your well-being. It is for the health of your family. It is for the health of this city. Ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, look at your marriages right now and say, okay, we have got to map out, yes, this baby is expensive. We don't have a lot of money. We don't have a lot of time. But where can we just go for a walk, go to the park, sit down at Starbucks and have a coffee and leave the baby for 30 minutes? Leave the kids for a while so that we're making sure that we're connecting. Because mom and dad, if you base your lives and your marriage on those kids, they will be 18 in the blink of an eye and they will be gone. And you're going to be sitting there looking at each other. I don't even know who you are. I don't know who you are. Did you know that the divorce rate can continue to increase after the 40s and 50s because the parents leave and then you have two people looking at each other going, I don't even know what to do. Our whole existence just left the house. You've, you must hear and heed the warning that you start practicing now. My wife and I are in the continual practice of friendship. Friendship. And we're all, I mean, my wife and I, this is going to sound bad and plug your ears, Sophia, but we're always talking about, man, what are we going to do when they're gone? This is going to be awesome. When they turn 18, we're going to be free. We're going to go do what we want, right? It's a time of anticipation and expectation. And if you're a wise man, you're reverse engineering right now. I'm trying to figure out what my life is going to look like in my 50s right now in my 30s. So when I land that 747, it's going to be bumpy, but it'll at least have a runway to hit. Look at your time with Jesus. Look at your time with your church community. And I want to exhort the missional communities. Guys, the missional communities are a family. We're a family. That means that the baby is pooping during family time. It's not another event that we go to where we just put on a show. That means that the two-year-olds are probably watching a Disney movie while the kids, while the adults are trying to have a conversation. That means there's tons of interruptions. That means we're having meals and baby barfs all over the table. It's, it's, this is family. Missional community is not the place where we say, I've got to get everything. No, we are coming together to disciple each other as families. That's why MC leaders, I exhort you, you need to have that open home and make ways. Figure out ways. Get a babysitting co-op, but prioritize. God will provide for you. And, and check your hearts. If missional community and the Sunday gathering is just a necessary inconvenience, something needs to be recentered again. There needs to be a, a turning again to, whoa, for me to be strong and right with the Lord so that I can lead my family and raise this baby, little girl, little boy, right? I need to reconfigure and recenter my calendar. Number two, warning signs or symptoms. Uh, the money. Look at the way that you spend your money. Um, yes, you're going to spend a ton of money on those kids all the way up through college and, and maybe even beyond for some of them. But couples will be tempted to either reduce their giving or stop their rhythmic sacrificial giving because, you know, the newest whoop de doo Johnny Jumper that this psychologist says is going to make your little kid president of the United States of America, even though it costs 800 bucks, you just have to have. And then you put little Johnny in the little Johnny Jumper and he cries the whole time, right? Look at the way that you give. Look at where your treasures are piled up. The priority in the budgetary line of Christians is, God, you own all of this. What percentage do you want me to keep? What percentage do you want me to keep? Because it's all yours. And devote to stewarding for the sake of my kids, for the sake of my community. But it's all yours at the, at the top end. So you tell me which percentage I get to keep. The rest of it goes back to you to use for your glory. Check your checkbook and look and see what takes priority in your checkbook. Because wherever the top of that list is, that's usually the determining influencer. That's usually your God. 
I, I know, guys, we're going to take communion. Just let these things, let them get in there deep. Let them work in you. Then come to Christ and let him work you up. You know, this is the other thing with this giving thing. A lot of times, and we push this, we honor this. We believe this is a value. It's not a, it's not a have to, but we believe it's a worthy value that, that mom is there with the babies, especially when they're little. And so when mom quits working, if you've been dependent on that income, uh, all of a sudden that goes away. And my wife and I experienced that when I went into ministry and she quit working. Holy moly. Uh, brothers in this church that have talked with me, man, once your wife has that kid and stops working, things like whoop, the purse strings go and get really tight. And that's why percentages are important. Not just kind of a whimsical, well, this month, this month, but you've set a percentage so that your percentages stay the same and your hearts are giving in this incremental rhythmic way. Much more on giving when we get to the provision section, uh, January somewhere. Number three, look at the decisions. Look at the decisions that you're making as a couple. Is the first question you ask, when you prioritize your calendar, your events, your year, what does Jesus want? Or is the leading question, what about baby, what about kid, what about this, what about that? Jesus knows what that baby, that kid, everything needs. So how are you making your decisions? And then finally, this is a big one. And I want to be careful with this one because we're all under a lot of stress. But how... How is the emotional well-being of your home? Okay? Uh, Our home is like a nonstop E5 tornado. And there's three of them. And they're going nonstop. And they come through and it's like the house just blows up. And it's just total insanity. And the truth is, my wife and I love that. Because it's controlled insanity. We love listening to our kids laugh. It is like worship in my ears this morning. We let them have a little slumber party last night. I'm out there at 5 o'clock this morning doing my prayers and stuff. The kids start waking up about 7.30. And the first thing I hear is wrestling and laughing and ha, ha, ha. And it's getting crazy. And I I thought I heard something just break. And oh, no, but it's okay. But there's the other side of the coin where that little two-footer and all the six-footers are kind of bowed down. Don't upset the two-footer. Appease the two-footer. <laughs> Make sure that the two-footer doesn't get angry. And, and the two-footer determines where we go and when we go there and why we go there and how we get there and when we leave as well. And there's this emotional frazzledness. Um, there are moms out there where you, you're just at your wits in continually. And there are dads who are just trying to stay on top of it. Here, I want to exhort you and I want to encourage you. There is great grace for your homes. They're never with kids going to be like, you know, like sitting at the beach in Cabo, you know, with your little umbrella drink. It's never going to be that way with kids. And you don't want it that way. But learning to maintain a home where dad is the authority and mom is the authority and baby doesn't get to rule our emotions and baby doesn't get to determine where we go and how we go there and when we get there and baby doesn't get to determine our frazzled or non-frazzled state. We do. That's why they call us adults. That's how that works. All right. Here's what we're going to close with. We're going to go just a little bit long. We're going to take communion because I think this is an important piece. Everybody should be begging the question right now. How do we do this, Danny? How do we get this? How do we keep God as God? And I'm going to make a very provocative statement and then explain it. Turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 22. And we'll wrap up with this. Genesis chapter 22. We ask the question, How do we keep God as the center of our parenting, keep God as God, and the underlying fuel for that fatherhood is this. Sacrifice your son or daughter to God. What? Yes. To keep God as God, you must sacrifice your son or your daughter to God. There's this crazy story in the book of Genesis, chapter 22. For those of you new to your Bibles, very first book in the Bible. There's a man named Abraham, and I'm going to read the story for you. We'll draw out our points and then take communion. After these things, Genesis 22, 1, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here am I. And he said, listen to this. Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah And offer him there as a burnt offering. Sacrifice him on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. This is no joke. 
this cat Abraham is out there. He's praying. God speaks to him and God says, go set up an altar, tie up your son and sacrifice him to me. Now, theologians have been confused by this and Bible readers have been confused by this for all the ages. So Abraham rose early in the morning. I want you to see this. You see here an example of a man who keeps God at the center. God has said, God has willed, and Abraham obeys in faith. Abraham rose early in the morning. I want you to see here, he doesn't say to God, uh, it doesn't fit my schedule, God. (laughs) He doesn't say to God, but Isaac needs this and Isaac needs... No, Abraham says to God, okay, my son, you want me to sacrifice my son? He rises and he obeys. He took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac, and he cut the wood for the burnt offering, and he rose and he went to the place which God had told him. On the third day, on the third day, just remember that third day anytime you read it all through the Bible. It's a big, important day. But on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and he saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey, and I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. I want you to hear Abraham's example here. Abraham, in obedience to God and sacrificing his son, is still in an attitude of worship. Worship meaning my life, my son's life is surrendered wholly to God. I am a sacrifice to God, and my son now, in obedience to God, is a literal sacrifice to him. Verse 6. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took his hand, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them together, and Isaac said to his father Abraham, Hey, dad. And he said, here I am, my son. And he says, behold, the fire and the wood, but where's the lamb for a burnt offering? Isaac's getting wise on his daddy's doings here. Hey, what's going on here? The way this works in our real world life. Hey, 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 I'm not the center of attention here. What are you doing? You're not paying attention. You're not doing what I, whoa, that's fire. That's wood. That doesn't line up with what I want. What are you doing? I want you to see Abraham's response. He says, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them together. Now listen to this. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand, took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here am I. And he said, do not lay your hand on the boy. Or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Let's draw just a couple points here and take communion together as friends and as family. What we learned from Abraham was that godly parenting is willing to sacrifice our sons and daughters to the glory of God and obedience to God. To keep God at the center, our sons and our daughters, our babies, our elementary school students, our teenagers. They must be set up on an altar and we must be able to let them go. What we see in Abraham is we see a man who believed that God loved Isaac more than he did. Abraham was persuaded of the truth that Isaac was not his. He was God's. And so because he didn't have Isaac as his identity and as his purpose and as his fulfillment and as his emotional well-being, when God, who was his center, when God, who was his everything, said, give him up, Abraham believed and knew that God had that same affection towards his son and so he could trustingly obey him. Abraham believed that God knew what was best regardless of how hard it was and he obeyed. And Abraham actually believed that by sacrificing his son, God would raise him from the dead. We know that from Romans chapter 4, where Abraham didn't waver in faith, and we get an insight into the way he was thinking. Abraham was going to go through with this because he believed God was good, and God was able to raise his son from the dead. For us, we can do this. We can bring our children... When our, when our children become prodigal and they go AWOL and they leave Jesus and they're not walking with him anymore, I can't tell you how many parents of 18 to 25-year-olds, I've just had to look them straight in the eye and say, you are at a point where you, you emotionally, you're going to 
feel this, but you've got to trust and lay them up on an altar. God loves them more than you do. God is after them more than you are. God cares for them and has a purpose for them greater than your care and purpose. Lay them up on the altar and the Lord himself will provide a lamb. For us to truly raise children that love God, we must have them offered up to God from the very beginning. I lay hands on my children on average two or three times a week before they lay down. I've done this since they were born. Pray for merciful regeneration of their hearts. I pray for purity and holiness and missionary power for my girls. I pray for courage and strength and valor and chivalry for my boy. And often I just find myself saying, and they are yours. There's a sweet pain in that. And I'll tell you guys, the only pathway to this sacrificial life of parenting is to recognize that later in the story, there's a father and there's a mountain. There's a hill that is climbed and upon a son is placed the wood and the fire of God's wrath in Jesus Christ. And there the father raises his knife in the form of soldiers spitting and mocking and scorning. And there is no separate animal lamb provided. The Son Himself, Jesus Christ, becomes the sacrifice for all of us. And the Father there plunges the knife of His wrath into the heart of His Son in our place. And the Son overcomes that death, our death. Three days later, on the third day, He rose. So that we as sons and we as fathers and we as mothers and we as daughters can rest assured that there is victory in Jesus Christ, that his love for us is all encompassing. It's all consuming. It never ends. The sacrifice has been made so we can willingly with joy lift up our children in prayer, lift up our hearts in prayer, sacrifice our sons and daughters and ourselves to his glory. Everything has its roots in the gospel. What we're going to do now is we're going to take communion. And for those of you that are maybe new to church life or the church world, what what we do is in obedience to Jesus. Jesus said, take bread and eat it the night before he died and take a cup of wine and drink it. He said this to his disciples and he said, do this in remembrance of me. And so today, as the band comes up and we begin to to play and, and to pray, All of us can get up and partake of communion. There's a communion station in the back, uh, over here on the side and over here on the side. You can go forward and and I would exhort each one of us. There's there's a number of things that the Spirit is wanting to do in you today. Some of us just need to return to our Father. You've been thinking of God as as master and you're the slave. You've been thinking of God as, as creator and you're the created. Those are right. But he is, he is longing with the compassion of a father to have you rest in him and, and, and be held by him. And he wants to fill you with that Abba sense of his presence. And so come to the communion table and see that the father let his son climb the hill and sit on the cross and be sacrificed for, for you. Return to the fatherliness of God. Some of us this morning, we just need to hear that God is with us. He's with us in our parenting. Some of you mamas are so overwhelmed. (laughs) I love you. My wife loves you. But more importantly, Jesus loves you. You're overwhelmed and you're scared and you're looking at that little precious baby and you're going, what if I mess up? We all do as parents. We're all looking at our kids going, what if I mess up? Come to the communion table this morning and know that Christ lived perfectly for all of our mess ups and Christ overcame all of our mess ups and Christ lives and is with us in our parenting. And eat communion joyfully, remembering that right now, despite our failures, our God will guide us. Our God is with us. Our God does not leave us. And pray fervently for your children. Some of us just need to grab somebody, one of the prayer partners around this room, and just confess some sin. Just confess it. Just get it off your chest. Just, man, I, I have been scared. I've been doubting. I've been thinking of God as my father. I've been short in my home. I've been a tyrant. Some of us just need to to turn to God and say, I need wisdom this morning to raise my child. Help me, Lord. And he'll give us good teaching and he'll give us good books. And then he'll give us power and strength to obey. As we come to the communion table this morning, rest in the truth that he's your daddy. He's your Abba. 
And he's not going to leave you. He's going to guide you this morning into greater grace. He's going to help you raise those babies. Some of those babies are going to stab you in the back. They're going to leave Jesus and it's going to hurt. Some of those babies are going to go on and become missionaries and powerful prophets of the gospel of grace. But they are his, not yours. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for this family called Taproot Church. And I pray this morning that we would respond to the spirit and the scriptures. I lift up to you, Sophia and Nyla and Joby. I lay them on the altar. I plead with you that they would be daughters and sons of yours, that they would walk with you, that they would worship you, that they would love you, that they would know you. And I pray, gracious God, for the babies of this church. When I see them, when I hold them, when I'm able to look in their little tiny eyes and I see, I see the fruit of their lives. I can see them, Lord. I see missionaries and I see disciple makers. I see pastors and prophets being raised up in this church and they are all, all in their infancy now. Give these parents wisdom. Give these parents grace and strength and stability and power. Give these fathers courage. Give them order and discipline and love for the sake of your name and the sake of their wife and the sake of their sons and daughters. Give these moms strength. Give them encouragement right now. Some of them, Lord, are so overwhelmed and so burdened and so afraid. Set their hearts at ease. And today, Father, when we, when we are given opportunity to watch our children, to listen to them laugh, God, may you preach to our hearts. Preach to us, Jesus, of your great love, your great grace in saving us. As we partake of communion this morning, may you be made much of. In Jesus' name, amen.